All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to come on and, and do this. Uh, Happy to you, brother. Yeah, and uh, had a lot of requests for you to come on, so I thought it would be a good time to do it, and um, I thank you for accepting. Uh, just go ahead and inter- yeah, just go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about your uh, journey with dogs. Okay, sounds good, man. I'm Brian, Evolution Bulldogs. Been breeding bulldogs for about 16 years. It's the same bloodline of bulldogs for the last 16 years. I've introduced very little outcrosses. Um, since I started establishing my bloodline, um, matter of fact, I stayed closed for over a decade. Um, so when I started having interest in bulldogs, I guess I was a kid, quite a small child. Um, the image of bulldogs that attracted me was the bulldogs from the cartoons. They embodied this powerful persona. They were of the super dogs you know i remember a cat punching or the dog punching a cat straight through a brick wall and it was just this big meaty broad massive powerful dog and that that was very exciting to me so i kind of fell in love with that idea of a dog and then as i got older uh, i came across english bulldogs in the flesh and even french bulldogs and i was i was left pretty dissatisfied i was not impre- not impressed with these little roly-poly fat shits <laughs> drooling and farting and snorting and couldn't run or you know there's no no way that they could punch a cat through a wall so um i was pretty let down by that but i i did when i was 15 years old uh run into a breeder in oklahoma city area had a, a very large English bulldog miss, named Mr. Jack. He was big barrel chest, really broad shoulders, lots of meat on him, tiny little waist, and he loved to wrestle. And he was he was pretty functional, um, but he was much larger than the breed standard. And then fast forward uh, quite a few years, maybe six, seven years from there, uh, I ran into my first old English bulldog. And uh, that seemed a lot more capable to me. And, and at that point, I started doing a lot of research about the breed. Um, prior to that, you know, I was kind of looking at American Staffordshire Terriers, uh, Staffordshire Bull Terriers, stuff like that, because they were much more functional. Um, also the American Pit Bull Terrier, but um, dogs that were high energy wasn't really what I was going for. I, I was really excited about a dog that was more low energy, um, maybe up to moderate energy, but Definitely high drive, just a chill, relaxed dog, unless it was time to work, time to play. So I actually did a lot of research. I, I traveled around the country quite a bit and uh, went to several breeders' yards, saw a lot of kennels, saw a lot of dogs, um, started picking up dogs here and there, you know, buying dogs. And um, I would health test and temperament test the dogs and, and be pretty let down most of the time. Um, I started my breeding program and uh you know most of the dogs didn't make the cut and so i doubled down <laughs> went around looked for more dogs uh found some better examples of dogs and i built my entire breeding program around a dog named extremes ali and i bought him as an adult and i was actually able to see um, 
what he had produced. I was pretty impressed with his productions as well as that dog himself. Um, when I picked him up, we took him to the vet. I think he was 103 pounds that day, and he was underweight still a little bit. Um, but I ended up building my whole program around that dog, and I started doing uh, clockwise breeding around him. Uh, the biggest thing that I really wanted to produce was those big, powerful, massive, capable bulldogs that I sh thought should exist in the world. And when I found out about David Levitt's whole vision of what he was trying to produce, these, these bull baiting era dogs that were healthy and athletic and capable, I was on board. So I think that, you know, we've kind of lost sight of that um, as a breed, unfortunately. I was the first holding this bulldog breeder to offer a lifetime health guarantee. Consider joining our Patreon community to access exclusive content, early releases, and personalized experiences. Subscribing not only supports Sean from the Bulldog Social Club, but also connects you with a community of like-minded enthusiasts. Whether you enjoy Sean's interviews, appreciate creative processes, or desire exclusive perks, your subscription plays a crucial role. Click the link, subscribe, and be a part of this journey with us. And there are people that have joined suit uh, afterwards, which is really nice. I think that's heading in the right direction. I think that if, if you're going to have the marketing ploy of, you know, selling a dog that is capable, athletic, healthy, that can run and play and breathe in the heat of the summer, and people are giving their hard-earned money for that, I think you should be able to back that. And and there's a, just the majority of Bulldogs can't do that, especially in this breed. <laughs> you, you, you get people that are breeding to a, a really unhealthy phenotype that are that are excessively bully, super brachycephalic, um, pinched nares, they're built on short, stubby legs. You know, these people are talking about, oh, he's a ground pounder. And that, to me, is just disgusting. It's, it's, it's not what this breed was founded on. It's, it's not the philosophy behind what it was created. Uh, a lot of the old heads that are still hanging out in the game, it's not why we got into it, and it's not what we've been working for. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty dissatisfied with that, and as a result, I just I stay off of social media. I don't get on there. I'm not on the Facebook groups anymore. I've left most of them um, that have anything to do with old English Bulldogs. Keep my head down, focus on my own yard, you know, um, People are dropping like flies. People are contacting me all the time. How are you still selling dogs? And you know, I think that, that people who produce a, a good quality product in any field will always have clientele. You know, right this minute, when I know four breeders who have gotten out of the game in the last six months, you know, I have a waiting list of 20 plus people who have placed deposits waiting for puppies from me. So I, I just think that it would be highly valuable in this breed for some people who are active in this breed to really push and promote a healthy, capable ideal and just not accept anything less. Um, that's not going to be me. I, I played that game for years. You know, I called out breeders who were, who were you know, just puppy peddlers a long time and I just I don't have energy to do it anymore I'm a failing man um, 
I'm on to <laughs> a lot of other things at this point in my life. And uh, I don't have time to play the social media game. Yeah, I've noticed uh, you haven't been on much. I watched some of your YouTube videos prior. So um, I had, you know, I always kind of figured that that would probably, that was probably the case. So what, let's take it back to the, to the beginning, then we'll touch upon what you were saying uh, a little bit later, because I definitely want to discuss it a little further. Okay. Um, sure. What, uh, what was the, the lineage of, of your original dog and, and, um, can you kind well, of talk about that? At the time that I got Extremes Ali, I had probably six or seven or eight other dogs. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at Extremes Ali, um, this big dog, from what we understand, there's a lot that we don't understand about Extremes Ali. Um, you know, I picked up tidbits here and there. When I originally purchased the dog, his paperwork was, he had to hang papers. So um, he was stated to be out of a different dam than what he was from. He was stated to be from different lineage than what he was from. The best that I was able to find was that he was 50% American Pitbull Terrier um, from Hicks Line, American Pitbull Terrier down in uh, Waco, Texas area. That was his dam. And that his sire was uh, my Bulldog's blood, so Victorian Bulldog. Right. Interesting. Um can you kind of talk about like the, the history and the evolution of the old English? Like, did it start with David Levitt? It was that the original yeah, OG. It did. You know, there's, yeah. there's a bunch of silly shit out there. There are people who tell wild stories. Um, yeah, obviously it stated, started with David Levitt. Now at the time, you know, to my understanding, of course I wasn't there. I was born in 1978. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the old English bulldog reconstruction or recreation was already well underway by the time I was born. Um, but David Levitt apparently lived near other well-known bulldog breeders that were involved, maybe in other breeds of bulldogs even, and um, they utilized some of the breeding stock, the same breeding stock, um, and that David was the first one to create the old English bulldog. He's the one who coined the name. Uh, there were other breeders at that time uh, and you can go back. There's um, documentation of a lot of this stuff with advertising and dog fancy magazines and stuff like that. So, I mean, there there, there are uh, ads <laughs> that are still floating around. I mean, I picked up a, a copy of Dog Fancy magazine yesterday from the 90s. Um, we were looking at it. I'm trying to think. But there were, there were quite a few notable uh, bulldog breeders that were in there that are still doing it today. So... I mean, you can still find that stuff, and you can find stuff online about that. But at the time it, that David was doing it, there was another breeder who became well-known, Greg Hermes, which, you know, I've hung out with David Levitt. I've hung out with Greg Hermes. Greg's been to my house, um, and Greg was working on his own bulldog thing. Like his brothers were rolling pits back in the day, and he wanted to create dogs that were bigger and better. 
Um, originally, Greg Hermes didn't call his Bulldogs Holdingless Bulldogs. That name wasn't even made yet. So he said World's Largest Bulldogs. And that's what all his advertising was at the time, too. He just said World's Largest Bulldogs. And it wasn't any kind of particular special spelling like David did with Old English-style spelling. Uh, it was just B-U-L-L-V-O-G-S. So, um, Do you enjoy listening to audio podcasts like I do? Consider joining the Bulldog Social Club Spotify membership. For a limited time, it's only $1.99. Get early releases and personalised experiences. Subscribing not only supports Sean from the Bulldog Social Club, but also connects you with a community of like-minded enthusiasts. Whether you enjoy Sean's interviews, appreciate creative processes, or desire exclusive perks, your subscription plays a crucial role. Click the link, subscribe, and be a part of this journey with us. You know, there's some debate with certain groups, and then, you know, there was another gentleman who's up north in uh, Minnesota, I think, who created the Renaissance Bulldogs, um, Chad Joel Kerr. I'm, I'm not familiar with him, haven't met him. I, I remember when I first got into dogs that um, Gargoyles Hugo was a big deal. You know, there were a ton of people that were trying to reconstruct that dog. Um, but as far as holding this bulldog's concern and the name and all that stuff, obviously came from David Levitt. Um, that's the best I can tell from all the information that I've had, hanging out with these people, um, being around in the dog world for the last 16 plus years, uh, talking to a bunch of old heads. You know, when I, when I first started, uh, there were several people that I learned from that mentored me. Um, all of them were in Texas, which is interesting because I lived in Oklahoma at the time and then moved to Hot, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and then now I live in Kansas. But um, had three different people who were very actively mentoring me initially. And those guys always obviously had a history and a breed that extended way back before mine. Uh, and then there were other people that were down south of you know, Willie Sullivan, he was around for a long time. It said that Willie Sullivan's um, family had been breeding bulldogs for a long time that extended long before the breed became a thing. So if you have Sullivan blood, you may or may not have some some of that older stock. I don't, some of that descendants from that older stock. Um, but I do know also that there's a lot of, a lot of bullshit in bulldogs, man. There was uh, a lot of stories that were being told that were just absolutely false, completely fabricated. Uh, there were breeds that were made up <laughs> in order to sell puppies from crossbreed breedings and came up with just made up all new names and said that they had this history that went back hundreds of years and it didn't. Uh, I know a lady in particular very well who, you know, sat down with me one day and was like, all right, take a look at this. I wrote this breed standard. It's fucking completely made up <laughs> like the lady who created this breed it wasn't a breed she put two puppies together or two dogs together that were different breeds and made these small little bulldog type dogs and um, a gentleman who had some clout decided to buy some of them because they were really cool and then had her come up with the backstory they changed names of people that were involved and everything for the uh, for the backstory on the breed. So there's a lot of bullshit in bulldogs. the The biggest thing 
that I can see historically that has happened. And this is this is from lots of historic documentation um, of where bulldogs came from. You know, dating back to you know when the the bulldogs and the Alonts and the Mastiffs and all that were all kind of from the same type of um, really a phenotype because at the time there was no distinct genotype. There's there's breeds of dogs and breeds of animals um, that have been established for thousands of years. Some of them and they all have a very limited um, ancestry. So they're, they're, they lack genetic diversity. Um, you know, if you look at some of the greatest bloodlines or greatest breeds in the world, you know, you look at uh, Belgian blue cattle. I mean, these guys are monsters. And they, if you look back far enough, there were 11 original ancestors and it was all built around one bull with 10 different 10 different heifers so um if if you have um very diverse genetics you're, you're not going to get consistency of type and for a long time there wasn't consistency of type in bulldogs for hundreds and hundreds of years but um the, the biggest thing that you see it's like it's cyclical in bulldogs and kind of always has been it's the bulldogs that are bred for work versus the bulldogs that are bred for looks and uh one of the most notable differences would be like the filoquan breeders versus the sour mug types and that happened post uh bull baiting uh making bull baiting illegal um through parliament in england that changed everything and so you have a group of breeders the filoquan that were working on establishing Dogs that were based on functionality, and then they wrote the first breed standard, first written breed standard for bulldogs. And then you had the sour mug guys that were just looking for a smashed face, cute little human looking, fat, cute, whatever. And um, unfortunately, the guys that were working dogs, the Felicon, they didn't have time to do the whole um, political battle the whole smear campaign, you know, they, they created a, a big distrust of these working bulldogs. And uh, they told everybody they were dangerous and not suitable to be around children and all this other stuff. And then our, our sweet, cute babies can be in the family and be in the house and they're way better dogs. And, you know, if you look, one guys were too busy doing real shit. They didn't have all this time to sit there and, you know, buy ads and do a big smear campaign and do a bunch of interviews and stuff about their dogs because they were doing busy doing real shit so and that's what we that's what we deal with today as well but that's been cyclical it's occurred over and over and over with bulldogs and i it's probably never going to end because that's that's the cycle that that bulldogs exist within and so there's those who work dogs and those who do not and those who do not work dogs they're just sitting on the couch and now they can just type on their keyboards and talk all the shit they want and, you know they win the political game okay so obviously originally if you read the um i don't want to degrade david levitt's work by saying it was a marketing ploy but it was definitely the way that um it was put out to the public that that the, the recreation of the old English Bulldog 
was done by crossing one half English Bulldog and then one uh, sixth of each, um, you know, American Bulldog, American Pitbull Terrier, and Bull Mastiff. Um, so I find that pretty interesting um, because mathematically, you know, those percentages and I may be off on those I don't remember what originally it's been so long since I've read that stuff but I believe that it was 50% English Bulldog and then 1-6 APBT 1-6 BM and 1-6 American Bulldog so um, but I, I have seen the rating scheme that David used he sent it over to me it's a it's a solid rating scheme and it uses uh, aunt and nephew and and uh, uncle or I'm sorry, nephew to aunt and um, uncle to niece readings primarily. And, and that's another thing that I want to touch on. A lot of these people, they, they just are not, they don't take breeding seriously enough that they have educated themselves to the point where they understand proper terminology. Um, when you're listing a breeding, you always list the male first this the male then the female it's always been that way historically it always will be that way amongst real dog men and women of every breed then it's it's like if you look at the top side of a pedigree so when you go get your pedigree the whole tops of the pedigree is male right so you got a male over the female and then on the grandparents you've got the grand sire over the grand dam um, so it's just one of the things that we have done as breeders forever to be able to speak with other breeders and they know which one's a male and which one's a female without us saying, well, the stud is, we say it's by whatever the name of the dog is, out of whatever the name of the bitch is. But I digress. So um, originally, David Levitt used those four breeds uh, to create, recreate the old English Bulldog, the Bull Baiting Hair Dog. And then uh, as we went along and registry started springing up to uh, pay for these bulldogs. They they didn't necessarily stick that original formula and they didn't necessarily stick with the original breed standard. Although um, since the breed standard being part of a registry is considered a, a mark of the trade or a trademarked um, piece of documentation, the different registries can adopt the same breed standard. And so one of the things that they have done is they have written breed standards that basically depict the same proportions and, you know, just same basic phenotype of dog, but say it in different, different ways so that they didn't run into trademark issues. And so uh, there were other registries that made that breed standard either tighter or looser than the original breed standard. And um, a lot of those breed standards of different registries have also been adjusted as they went. So they didn't adhere to a strict standard over a period of time. They just started letting in things that were disqualifying faults originally, uh, unacceptable qualities and traits, and just started accepting them and it wasn't that big a deal. So, um, when that happened, it kind of opened the floodgates for people to just make whatever the hell they wanted 
<laughs> throw whatever, throw two dogs together and get papers on it, or you know, take breeds that were outside of that original scope, put those together, and uh, call them old English bulldogs. And people get papers on those dogs. So um, it's just kind of started at a very fine point with David Levitt with very strict guidelines, uh, strict breed standard, things like that. And then as that gained momentum, it just kind of trickled down and became something much looser and has headed us over time invariably right back where we started. So you, you look at why David created this breed. It, it was an answer to the unhealthy English bulldog. And now I look on these groups and all I see is a bunch of poorly bred English bulldogs of questionable lineage. There's no line breeding. They're getting more and more diverse. There's 37 or 50 breeds that are in this stuff. These people are getting um, their DNA tests back and there's Boston Terrier. Just crazy stuff in these dogs, <laughs> a lot of them. And, and um, I understand as you continue to breed a, a distinct line of dogs, um, you will start losing some of those genetic markers for some of those breeds. So you might have original Levitt blood and then it'll come back and you know the Bull Massive will be dropped out or the American Bulldog will be dropped out or the English Bulldog will be dropped out. Um, so over time, because the, just just naturally in the reproduction process, 50% of the DNA is discarded um, in every individual. So 50% of the, the sire's genetics will not exist forever in that offspring. And so you don't know what 50% that is. Uh, it's randomly selected So um, in the reproduction process. So you, you can lose markers for some of these breeds as you go. That's not the issue we're running into. We're running into um, DNA results that show a multitude of other breeds that are that are not even bulldog breeds. So that's that's the way that we're heading. That's the way we've been heading. It's it's getting more diverse genetically, um, less strict adherence to breed standards. Um, people are not working dogs. Unfortunately, there's a huge majority that don't work dogs. Never worked a dog, never had a dog on a sleeve, never weight pulled, never did anything other than through, throw two dogs in a pen together, make puppies. And it's unfortunate because I'd like to see um, this breed be capable, healthy, functional, athletic dogs, you know, that adhere to the original breed standards. And can you talk about the original breed standards? Well, um, I remember when I first got into this breed and at the time, and I don't even, I don't even know which registries are big now in this breed. I just know what registries I use. But originally when I started in it, the IOEBA was huge. And so the IOEBA breed standard was a standard that was written uh, uh, with functionality in mind. You know, and it and it it said, you know, a robust dog that was, you know, they they, they even talked about gait in there. You know, 
know, I don't don't know if they do anymore. I haven't read the breed standard, but I know it has changed over time. Um, but it's a healthy, capable dog that should be able to breathe freely and uh, breathe naturally and wilt naturally. So those those are pretty significant traits, qualities that I think people have not been adhering to, but um, also the long-haired stuff. I mean, when I first started out, one of my mentors did have some blood that did have long hair genes in there. It's a recessive trait. And if they had a long haired puppy or two, they'd cull those puppies and they didn't want anybody to know. It was, it was a big secret because it was embarrassing because people at that time were adhering more towards the breed standard and then the breed standard instead of short tight coat, you know, um, without waviness to it and uh, a smooth coated dog. So having long hair was, was unacceptable. And if that would have gotten out and, and, and see, we didn't have Facebook at that time. We had uh, message boards that were hosted by uh, a platform called Board Host. And the Board Host message boards were, um, you know, that's where everybody hung out. That's where everybody gained their information their knowledge. It was a forum and pretty much only the knowledgeable people were speaking on there. Everybody else was reading it. They shut the fuck up. Now everybody thinks that every single thought that they have in their head is valuable enough to put out on the internet, whether it's accurate, true, based on fact, doesn't matter. You know, they just think it and they think it's valuable and they put it out there. So that our, that original breed standard was a basically a medium sized dog. Um, and it went about talking about proportions uh, and, you know, ear set on the highest part of the sides of the head and talked about ear sets and, you know, rose ears were preferred button ears were acceptable, but tulip ears and full prick ears were, you know, like full prick ears were a disqualifying fault. Um, I think tulip ears were a fault, but it, it went through and talked about those specific traits and characteristics. But I remember there's, you know, an, an overview that talked about what the dog should be like their, their demeanor and that they should be courageous and aloof with strangers and things like that, but relatively friendly. Um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I haven't sat, memorized that whole breed standard, but, right. you know, as far as gait is concerned, and gait is really important for a, a functional dog, uh, feet, gait, um, you know, their structural uh, assemblies, like the, the whole rear assembly, it talks about good turn of stifle, a dog that's not pigeon-toed or cow-hawked, uh, uh, it has a, a nice narrow double track that uh, shouldn't crab or gait when it walks, uh, or it shouldn't crab or pace, sorry, it shouldn't crab or pace when it walks, which most people you say crabbing, they have no idea what that means. It's right there in the breed standard. And I'm assuming it's still in a breed standard. Like I said, I haven't written it, written, haven't read that breed standard in quite some time. Um, but for those who don't know, you have a quadruped animal and um, tracking is where the footprints hit. So if you were to connect those dots from where they're, you know, if they were to walk in the sand or whatever, and you connect those dots, a single track would be where each footprint hits on one line. A double track is those footprints would hit in two parallel lines. Um, and then uh, pacing is when the dog, they also call it a, in some breeds, like the Felo Brasario, they call it, um, 
ammo walk, I think, where the left feet move in unison and the right feet move in unison. They step at the same time, which is a fault with bulldogs. And crabbing is where the, the rear feet and the front feet don't track. They're turned slightly to the side, so it would be, be like a quadruple track. Yeah, very interesting. And what is the standard that you live by on your yard? Like, you, you know, you've you kind of touched upon the fact that the registries are kind of not your not your thing. So as right far now. as like as far as breed standard is concerned, I, I think all of the breed standards that were written are are basically on the same page as far as being a healthy, capable, functional dog that can breathe and can work. You know, a, a working breed of dog and um, well muscled, short, tight coat. You know, they talk about the proportions of the head and the eye set and the nose and a distinct stop and a medial fur, furrowed brow, a dog with a double dewlap. Um, they talk structurally about, you know, the placement of the feet and have cat cat like feet and nice, high, tight carpus joint. Um, but I think that for me specifically, I, I think that those standards and those traits that they talk about is a, it's a little bit loose. It's, and, 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 and it's supposed to be a little bit loose because it's a standard. It's not an ideal, right? So it's like the minimal requirements to have adherence to the breed and, 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 right. When I say to the breed, I mean breed type, obviously with this breed, since it's just so genetically diverse, there's no consistency of, of genotype at all. So we need to really at least focus on consistency. A phenotype is a breed and genotype as breeders. Like if you close your yard and you don't bring in a bunch of outside blood and you find blood that works and you start line breeding that, because when you line breed, you tend to preserve the traits that are, that are present in the parents. When you outcross, you tend to dilute the traits that are present in the parents. And when you inbreed, you tend to concentrate the traits that are present in the parents, right? So if we select dogs that work for us and what we're going for, and we limit the genetic pool that we're drawing from in our selective breeding program, then we're going to start fixing traits, right? Genetically, genotypically, not just phenotypically. So, so the phenotype is going to display what the genotype is in combination with the environment. Um, but for me, instead of doing that fairly broad view of the breed standard and just breeding to the bare minimum, um, I have created my own vision which is inside fits obviously within the scope of that breed standard, right? And it must. Um, unfortunately, we've gotten away from that as a group of breeders. Uh, people are coming up and just breeding to their own vision. They call it They stole this term from me because it was working for me. People understood it very well. And so they, they took this vision of a dog that's obviously outside of the scope of the breed standard, which you should never do that. That's Then it ceases to be part of that breed anymore. And so we want to look at breed type, or some people call it type, they shorten it to type. You find people talking about the type and typey and using terminology like that, which is really jargon because it's a, 
the short form of, uh, short form of the word or the term that's been around for a long time, breed type. And we need to fix our breed type to that standard. And then breeders can obviously manipulate their individual bloodlines of dogs to fit within that breed standard, but to fit certain niches within that. And that's what I've done. And if you want to learn more about that, it's been posted on my website for a decade and a half. It's a, a page that's dedicated to it entitled My Vision. And so uh, all of those things that are within that uh, fit within the scope of the breed standard, but it kind of narrows it a little bit more. And I read towards my ideal dog, which is a very specific dog. It's a very specific height, a very specific weight, a very specific width, a very specific head circumference, very specific drives, very specific, you know, temperament components. It, it covers the broad array um, or the wide array of, of desirable traits that I'm looking for specifically that do fit with inside that, that breed standard. Um, so it, it's still all the same things that the breed standard says. Um, I like lazy dogs, but I like very high drive dogs. So what that means for me is how that translated into the real world is um, you have a very low maintenance dog at that point. So a high, a high energy dog would be a dog that's looking for things to do all the time and just in constant movement. I don't like high energy dogs. I want low energy. I want high drive. So a dog that's low energy and there's nothing going on, they're chilled, they're settled. But a high drive dog, and there are several different types of drives that we talk about as breeders and working dog men. Um, but specifically, I want a dog that's high in prey drive. Um, I want a dog that has moderate defense drive. I don't, I don't want a super suspicious dog that's running around looking for, for things to fuck up all day. But um, I, I do want um, a dog that is very focused in defense and knows how to assess and identify a threat and act accordingly. And obviously a, a dog that will respond to aggression with aggression is really important um, for when there's no aggression presence. I want a dog that's very mild-mannered as well. I'm able to hang out with kids and old people and you know, not be a problem. And I also want a very highly trainable, highly intelligent dog. Um, when I was competing with my dogs consistently, um, which I still compete with my dogs a little bit here and there, it's not often and I do it just as a, you know, a suitable breeding test of my breeding stock, which that's what everything should be. Like um, as far as confirmation shows are concerned and working events, I mean, essentially the reason those were created is to assess your breeding stock, period. Like that's, that's why in confirmation shows, dogs that are altered are not allowed in the confirmation show ring. It's a waste of everybody's time. If that dog's not potential breeding stock, then, then what's the point? Get them the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. We've got better things to do. So um, using those venues to test breeding stock is really important. And I think that everybody who breeds dogs should at least be involved in some form of outside third party assessment. Um, I know in like South African warbles, they have an appraisal system where they have people that are certified to appraise 
just breed a dog and you take your dogs to get appraised and then they get scored and evaluated um, based on the standards that are appropriate for that breed. And so we don't really have that in this breed. And so if you know, no working dog men and um, you know, people that do personal protection work or, or trainers and things like that to come and assess your dog, that people that don't give a shit whether or not your dog is viable breeding stock or not, I mean, that's a really good way to start assessing your dog. But when I was uh, traveling all over the country and into Canada uh, with my dogs um, to essentially judge how well they conform, not just to the breed standard, but also um, to my vision of what I was working to produce, you know, um, that was, that was obviously really, really helpful for me to ensure that I was making good quality dogs. And then there's other testing mechanisms that are going to be important to different breeders based on what they're, what they're shooting for. Um, I think I kind of lost a little bit of track there, but. No, it's all right. Uh, we were just talking about your, your standard on your yard and you were explaining yeah. what that came from. And height and weight talk about that because that's interesting because you know i've had conversations with people about your dogs and we're, we were always try to guess you know like because they look they look you know they look massive they look they're big there's the they're, wow factor with them they're way up on the high end of the spectrum and like i said yeah. when i first got into dogs i was looking at the ioeva breed standard and that's really what i was following um the ioeva breed standard has ranges for males and then it has ranges for females and the range for a male goes up to 90 pounds um and then it also goes up to a certain height which i don't remember specifically but unfortunately what a lot of people weren't following there um because they had a range for height let's say for argument's sake it's you know 17 to 22 inches would be a 75 to 90 pound male and so people were going on the low end of the height and then the high end of the weight. And so it was a disproportionate dog. You know, those, those low end of height and low end of weight should be in alignment and the high end of height and the high end of weight should be in alignment to have a good, well-proportioned dog. And that's one of the things that they hit on in the IOEVA, IOEVA breed standard originally was dogs that are larger than these um, parameters are not to be faulted um, as long as the proportions adhere to the rest of the breed standard. And so being a working dog man that does focus on protection work, when all other things are equal, a larger dog is much more effective. So if you have an 80 pound dog that has very specific proportions, has very specific structure. If you have a 110 pound dog that has all the same structure, all the same proportions, that looks the same, acts the same, eats the same, sleeps, breathes the same, moves the same, the larger dog is gonna get it done a lot better, a lot more effectively. It's, it's much more efficient to Cat protection dogs, everything else being equal, 
that are larger. So I want dogs that are on the upper end of the spectrum. Um, my average male, to answer your question directly, uh, my average male that I produce is 100 pounds. My average female that I produce is around 75 to 80 pounds. So I, I say that because it's probably, if I were to take all of my females that I've produced for the last 10 plus years and weigh them all and then average them all out, it'd probably be like 78 pounds. So, but my average male is 100 pounds and a lot of the males that I keep for studs on my yard are larger than that. Um, right now we have a dog, Kodiak, who is a phenomenal dog and a phenomenal stud. He will one uh, weight pull nationals in both his class and his division uh, last year and the year prior. Um, the first time he won weight pull nationals in his class and in his division, he was only two years old. And so he beat out all the and, and we don't breed dogs for the specific purpose of winning weight pull nationals. Um, I work on breeding a, a very well-rounded dog um, that's really good at other things as well and very highly trainable, smart, and eager to work and eager to please. Um, but my dogs like uh, Kodiak, who's here, is uh, I think his last, his actual weight is uh, was 123 pounds. So he's a big boy, uh, clutch fluctuates between 112 and 118 when I've weighed him. Um, but I also have little cute little Smash out here, which Smash is actually the sire and grandsire to Kodiak. Kodiak is an inbreeding from a father-daughter breeding. Uh, and his sire slash grandsire is uh, Evolution's Ground and Pound, a.k.a. Smash. And Smash is 80 pounds. It, at, his, at his peak, at his prime, he was 85 pounds lean. So, you know, you have those dogs that have the ancestry of large dogs behind them, and you get one that comes out small. A lot of times when you tighten up that blood, you can produce bigger dogs. And that's what happened mm -hmm. with Kodiak. He outweighs his sire by nearly 45 pounds. Can you talk about the... the uh the difficulty to, of breeding old Englishes compared to say like an American and, and what are some of the things that sets your breeding program apart from some of the others? Okay. So those are definitely good. Questions. As far as breeding is concerned. Sure. No, that's awesome. I think yeah. those are great questions. Yeah. So for, yeah. for me specifically, like I said, I breed one bloodline of dogs. Uh, I have introduced a, very little bit of outside blood. Once I established that original, those several clockwise breedings, and I was breeding half siblings together and getting the byproducts of that, and breeding those to half siblings, and you know, really line breeding uh, using that clockwise breeding method, uh, just that's that's how I established my bloodline. So it's it's pretty tight genetically out here, um, which has allowed me to eliminate a whole host of issues that are typical bulldog issues. Uh, so for me specifically, as far as uh, the, the question that you asked in regards to difficulties that uh, I have run into breeding old English Bulldogs as opposed to, say, American Bulldogs, none, none. These dogs, all of my males breed naturally. Bitch in heat, throw a bitch in his pen, 
stick and tie, you know, nine weeks later, she's spitting out puppies naturally. Um, over my whole career of breeding, I, I don't even know how many puppies I've produced. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been obsessed with producing excellent, phenomenal specimens. Absolutely over the top obsessed. And as a result, I have made a lot of dogs. Um, and I do breeding specifically in order to get puppies to keep back from my breeding program. And having puppies to sell has been a byproduct of that. Um, I have never done a single breeding where I've just been fixated on selling puppies. Uh, my breeding program is called Evolution because I want to evolve my own breeding program. That's that's the pinnacle. That's the that's paramount objective out here is to produce better dogs every generation. So as far as uh, the breed standard goes, it says dogs that can breed and well naturally. And I took that very, very, very seriously. So I don't have issues. I don't have weak puppies because when I first started establishing my bloodline, I culled weak puppies. I culled a lot of weak puppies. Um, I had puppies that were outside the breed standard and they got cold. And that's how things were back then. That's what all three of my mentors did. That's what their mentors did for thousands of years. Dog breeders have cold puppies that did not make the cut. We sure as hell didn't sell those puppies. We didn't put those out in the public ever. That would have been, you know, now things are different. Everybody thinks every living thing deserves to live. And if you cull puppies, you're a monster and all that stuff. And fortunately at this point, culling is not really a method that we use very often out here. You know, if I have puppies that have, you know, real issues, they'll get cold. If I have a puppy that shows uh, very poor temperament, which is very, very rare, because we do temperament testing. Um, and if they don't, they don't pass, then I would never put out, never intentionally or knowingly put out a puppy that had more temperament out of the world. I just don't think there's, there's room in this world. You look at all these shelters or full of these un, unwanted, ill-tempered dogs. I don't want to be part of that, part of the production of that. Um, so as far as difficulties is concerned, one of the difficulties that I did deal with in breeding these dogs is getting consistency. And that's the biggest reason that for 10 years in a row, when I first got into this, I had a loss. I lost money on these dogs for 10 solid years. And then I actually was in the black on year 11, <laughs> right back in the red on, on year 12. So um, for 10 years in a row, I took a loss, financial loss on these dogs. And, um, that's because I spent so much money on breeding stock and I spent so much money on testing and x-rays and, you know, getting trainers that are not associated with me to come out and evaluate my breeding stock or potential breeding stock. And a lot of this 
testing wasn't done until the dogs were a year or older or 18 months uh, to see if they could make the cut to be breeding stock and just a ton of them didn't make the cut and so they were spayed and neutered and sold into pet homes and and any breeder who's been breeding very long knows the difficulties that you can run into trying to place adult dogs um, it's really easy to sell a little cute little fuzzy potato puppy with a Puppies are super, super cute. All of them. <laughs> Even these guys that are making these train rack of dogs, they're still cute when they're six, eight weeks old. Um, mm-hmm. But the difficulty that I ran into was early on, and it was a difficulty that that stemmed from um, having a hard time producing consistency just because the genetics were so diverse. There was so much ancestry back there that the COIs were essentially non-existent. Whereas now my COIs, and for anybody who may be listening that doesn't know what COI is, it's uh, act, it's, it means coefficient of inbreeding. And so from a scientific perspective, there's no such thing as line breeding. That's a term that breeders use. Um, there's only inbreeding and outcrossing. So either they have common ancestry or they don't have common ancestry. And so um, they have come up with an, a, an equation to use to determine how much um, essentially heterozygosity they have, genetically speaking. You know, you have um, alleles that are the same at each loci, and what's the percentage of those that are going to be the same? Uh, so they came up with a COI. And if you look at like uh, laboratory mice, they have a COI that's 1.0, I mean, 100%. They, they, don't have they there's no divergence of genetic material if you dna test them um they essentially dna out as being the same individual when they're within the same strain of mice because they're so heavily inbred for so many hundreds of generations um, that they have just absolutely bottlenecked the genetics to the point where it can't be any more concentrated and so um in Old English Bulldogs, I think every breeder has difficulty with producing consistency just because of that genetic diversity. So I guess that's one of the problems that I've run into. Um, but as far as like having to be puppies or, you know, I know I've, I've been to so many different breeders' yards. I went to one breeder who is a big breeder. I consider a big breeder. In some breeds, they wouldn't consider a few hundred dogs a, a big dog yard. Obviously, I would. That's much, much bigger than me, you know, 10 times bigger than the size of my my dog yard and the amount of breeding stock that I have. But, um, you know, a few hundred dogs out there. And um, I, I asked her that question, and she's in this breed, and she told me that she had a problem with cherry eye and that that was – very common with her bloodline dogs. And and then she went on to tell me some bullshit story about how the dogs with cherry eye are just in these kennels over this overhead and that she thinks birds are shitting in their eyes and just silly nonsense. And obviously, anything that you see display physically in a dog has a genetic root. You know, obviously, phenotype is how the genotype and environment are at an interplay um, 
but if you're seeing an issue occur regularly that doesn't happen in other breeds of dogs or doesn't happen in other bloodlines of dogs within the same breed, obviously it has a, a, a genetic basis. Uh, you know, I eliminate anything that I see as being a problem. You know, uh, it takes a long time. Lot longer than most people think. They think, oh, well, in five years of breeding, I'm going to have this super dog, and that's that's great to think because it gives you something to shoot for. And I did within five breeding, five years have a super dog, um, evolution you know, champion, evolutions high voltage, uh, also known as Static. He was a superb specimen, and he had a multitude of titles working titles and confirmation and the reality is when you get one very fine specimen that's just the beginning you're just getting started um, the real test of a breeder is how well do they produce excellent dogs consistently and so that's that's the issue and then and then what does what sets apart my dogs from other dogs within that breed I have a little video that's actually on my website that kind of goes over that. Um, also, I kind of touched on it a little bit. Like I've been working the same bloodline of dogs for the last 16 years. Um, I offer a lifetime health guarantee that covers basically anything. You know, there have been people who got a dog that just the personality didn't match the environment. And that's that's very rare, too, because I, I try to ask as many questions as I can to find out um, what's the, what they're looking for, what their lifestyle is like. You know, they have small kids in the house, they have older kids, what do they like to do, what's their activity level, and try to match them up with a good prospect for their home. So, But I have, over the last 16 years of breeding this line of dogs, I have run into a couple of times, you know, it wasn't a good fit for the family, or I missed something. And, um, you know, people have brought dogs back to me, and I'm happy to take them back and replace them. And, uh, you know, that should never be an issue if you're a serious breeder. You know, you, you need to understand that your your customer base that buy puppies from you are the only reason that you're able to do this thing that you love. And for me, it, you know, it's absolutely a lifelong passion and just a, a complete obsession. And it, and it wasn't an obsession with making money or producing puppies for sale um, or getting any kind of clout or fame. Because, truth be told, fame's bullshit. It fucking sucks. You get people calling you, emailing you, fucking texting you all hours of the day and night. You go to these dog shows, you get bombarded with people, and, and it, at first it's it's really cool. Um, but it gets way old really fast. And if, if you develop skill sets that has real value in, in, in you know, the economic marketplace then making money breeding dogs isn't that big a deal either because you're making money doing other things um so like i'm a i'm a full-time professional tattoo artist and that's what i do day in day out five days a week you know i i spend two days off doing family stuff and dog stuff right now while we're doing this interview I have a very, very, very good dog friend of mine. We met through dogs, and he's like a brother to me. He's here right now from out of state, visiting, hanging out, you know, 
Um, so, you know, I spent those two days off really kind of fixated on my, on my dog breeding and on, on my family and spent as much time as I can doing the things that are really important to me. Um, but so fame and money and the dogs, if you're doing it for that, you're never going to be satisfied ever. You because there's no end to the amount of money that you can make, right? Uh, if you're breeding these dogs and you haven't, a, if you're not working an established bloodline with consistency, and if you offer any kind of guarantee that's worth a shit, you're going to have a real hard time making some actual money for the dogs. And then if you get the fame, it, it gets cool for a little bit, but it starts fucking suck. And then, like, people have these expectations of you. you know, um, my name has been thrown around a lot. Evolution Bulldog has been around for a long time. We made some phenomenal dogs over the years. Dogs have become very well known. Um, I know every two years there's this turnover of breeders. And so there's a whole generation of breeders that I don't know. And there's probably a huge amount of them that don't know me because I'm not active on social media anymore. Um, but like the fame thing, I, I feel like, you know, I, I attained a certain amount of notoriety within this breed that might be kind of likened to kind of fame within a small niche of, of mm -hmm. dog breeding. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's not, it's not for me. <laughs> it's not anything that I'm really interested in. You know, if I can sit, I can go into my dog yard and my phone's not blowing up 13 times and I can hang out with my dogs and go wake full dogs and play with dogs and whatever, you know. But yeah, it's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So really you need to be breeding for a higher purpose. And, and that can give you some very serious, um, wonderful fulfillment as a breeder. So I used to say, if, if, if you can't come up with this ideal dog in your mind, like this perfect dog, like an exact height, exact weight, you know, down to every finite temperament trait that you can imagine and, and be very, very specific. And if you can't come up with one that gets you super excited, then don't fucking breed. You're wasting your time. There's the, you have a very limited number of, of years on this planet, a limited number of years on this planet, a limited number of things that you can do because you have a limited amount of time. And, and, and to do something that your heart is not just fully engaged in, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the world a disservice. Because I think everybody has something that they can be really passionate about that they can give value to the world and get value back from. And if, if, if you're not, I, I used to say, if it doesn't make your blood boil and make your shoes catch fire to where you start taking steps, then don't do it. Dog breeding is not about throwing dogs together and making puppies for sale. Dog breeding should be about producing something that you're passionate about, that other people would be passionate about too. The dogs that you should produce, that you produce should enrich your customers' lives, should be something that you're proud of. Right, and I'm 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 a free market guy, so I I I think that you know you should 
benefit from your hard work and your passion. Um, but only after you, you take the steps to produce value. Yeah. Produce really good value and, and really provide yeah. a customer base, uh, a realistic approach to, to your product. And also, like you said, value and then, and then uh, lifetime support. I think that's where, that's why I have a lot of problem with, you know, some of the, your, your brand names, they don't, they don't produce stuff as value anymore. Um, as much as people crap on Apple products, they built things to last and they give you the best support. Is it great? Is it perfect? No, but there's a reason why people use Apple products, for example, uh, because they work and they'll last. And so I think that in, in the dog world, especially the bulldog world, that's, that's something that all bulldog breeders need to strive for. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate what you were saying, but yeah. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm all for the free market and I don't, I don't think it should be embarrassing for anybody to, to profit from their hard work and their, their no, I don't value. think so either. I don't think so yeah. either, but I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that people should be able to make as much money as the market will support. Right. So I'm not anti anti profits at all. Right. And I hope that I didn't come across that way. No, you didn't. But I think and... that people put the cart before the proverbial horse and they yeah. focus on the profits first, especially in dog breeding, because we we have, and, and like I said, I'm not on social media, and um, I don't know this generation of breeders, and I don't know what drives them. But my experience in watching the dog world is that we are full and have been full of people who are the working uneducated, people that do not have valuable skill sets, people that have not uh, worked to cultivate um, desirable products, work ethic, you know, people that don't have a, a highly valued skill set. And so as a result, you know, they go to their day job, which is a very, very low paying job, very low skilled labor. So it's very, you know, low wage. And then they make deals with breeders to get dogs that they can breed together and make money so that they can supplement their income or create an income. And, you know, they're all an entrepreneur. And so it's, it's a fixation on the financial aspect of dog breeding rather than a fixation on producing an excellent product. Yeah. That was kind of my thing is like what you were talking about is your whole passion was, was, to build this program, these dogs into the, your vision and what you, the standard that you saw in your interpretation and you just built on it and you created a brand before you made money. And I think there, there are people, like you said, they're creating uh, a brand before they have the product to show that they have a, a real brand and, and, yeah. you know, you have two dogs that you bought, bought, and you bu and you 
print out a T-shirt with your kennel name on it. That's right. <laughs> as a cons- as a consumer, I can see right through that, right? And and a lot of people so, can. So you're astute. You know, the good thing yeah. is, some people are able to see through that shit. But unfortunately, um, the average IQ is around a hundred, and that's 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 not a smart person. And that's the average because half of the people are stupider than that. And so some people are unable to see through the bullshit. Uh, some people, um, see breeders that have been doing it longer than me who are still doing it, who still have not produced consistency, never produced consistency, are constantly revolving their bloodline and buying different stuff from different places and throwing blood, you know, different blood together. And then it's all hype. You know, they're like, oh, this dog is this and this dog is that. And check this out. And, you know, this dog is super big. It's like they have one dog that's 100 pounds. They say it's 136 pounds when they post it on the Internet. They never bring the dog out in public. And there's no show scene anymore. Like, I, I don't even know when the last actual sanctioned dog show was other than the ABKC show. And there's no working events at those. At least there wasn't when I was going to them, you know, so it's a, it's a different world now that's based on hype and bullshit. And you have all these influencers <laughs> who are making money off of their fucking mouths, uh, their ability to make a cute video or some shit or hype up a dog or a product or whatever. Um, and it's foundationless. And unfortunately, a large portion of the population can't see through the bullshit. No, you're right. And I think people just get lost in 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 people's propaganda and then what the dog looks like and like you say, they, they Photoshop have... You know, that's, right. that's that's another thing too. It's like they're taking these pictures and then they're photoshopping them to make the dog look better than what it is. And that's how they're promoting the dog. And then the dog never goes anywhere. Nobody ever sees it. Yeah. I've, you know, I've been fooled um, because I, you know, I've never bred my, my whole, I've been a dog person as far as like a dog, my whole family, we've all had dogs. Our, our lives have kind of been surrounded by dogs, various dogs, mainly bulldogs and stuff, pit bulls and in the family yeah. and whatever. But, uh, um, but never a keen eye, never an, an ability to to look at that dog and say, oh, wow, that, that's a structurally sound dog or that dog has a good temperament. I mean, you know, because you get blinded by the dog that you love and is part of your family. You don't really necessarily focus on their faults. But um, the more that I've done this and interviewed people, it's been an education to me. But I've always been able to see through the BS, probably because... Yes my whole life I've had to, in my working world, I've dealt with unsavory characters. So I've had to read people really quickly. So I, I could see, see through a lot of, I, but I still been fooled, but you sure. know, eventually I, I come, I come around and then I'm able to see it, but you know, and each person has a different idea of what their ideal vision is. And, and that's, that's fine. But I think, where people get lost is, is what I like to hear from people. Like I talked to somebody who was um, uh, a protection dog person and they, they 
they went outside their breed to get some guidance and say, well, yeah, you know, what is, helpful. what, you know, they, they said a, a German short haired pointer or whatever, and they're a Malinois breeder and they're, they're just, this person has tons of knowledge, totally different skill set, totally two different dogs. Right. But you learn a completely different perspective when you go into yeah. different breeds and talk to those breeders. And, and, and that's, yeah. that's one of the things that, that is unfortunate now is in, in regards to the dog show circuit this dog show circuit used to be huge. And so it would allow a lot of guys in like the old English bulldog breed, which is a relatively new breed, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And certainly was then and, uh, go hang out with other breeders of much more established breeds that were more knowledgeable in, in a breed that had evolved far, far more so than the old English bulldog and really learn some things and, 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 and now it's like you you can talk to people about some of these old books that talk about David Levin in them, you know, like um, The World of Fighting Dogs by Dr. Paul Samanke. And like people have no idea what you're talking about. Or An, an Eye for a Dog by Robert W. I can't remember his last name. But, you know, these are, these are books that, that people should know about. There's, I mean, there's books like um, some of the some of the recommendations I give would be like uh, breeding purebred dogs for dummies. There's a guy, I think his name is Robert Beauchamp, that wrote that book, and he produced um, I think they were Bichons. It's it's been 20 plus years since I read that book, mm -hmm. but um, you know he he produces a ton of champions and and he knows what he's talking about. He's achieved a certain degree of notoriety and his breed but man you hit the nail on the head like going to other breeds established breeds and talking to breeders that have achieved something in those breeds can be invaluable because in this in this breed in the old English bulldog typically and historically it has been the blind leading the blind you can't have a conversation with most old English bulldog breeders about genetics, COIs, different types of gait, uh, characteristics, gaits, talk to them about different working drives. Uh, man, even, even going through and talking about deworming protocols and vaccination protocols, like these guys are kind of flying by the seat of their pants and, and not doing a lot of research and not consulting people who have achieved a degree of success in whatever other breeds and and like i said earlier so many people now on social media have been primed for the the poorly formed opinion that anything that they say is valued or valuable despite the fact that they know nothing about the topic. They'll just randomly throw out opinions uh, when it would serve them better to shut the fuck up and ask questions or shut up and listen uh, to people talk. Because when the noise of the crowds die down, the people who have experience are willing to speak more. 
Yeah, and I think like what you're what I think you're alluding to is that listening is has been a lost art, maybe paying attention. Um, yeah, I, and that's another thing that people, I think what I try to do is you don't need to have the same vision as somebody, but if your dogs are healthy, they have a function, they, they look proportionate, um, and they have, you know, a capability and the valuable bloodlines that, that have been proven before that, no matter what, what that is. I think, um, you know, we don't all have to have the same vision as far as what we're exactly looking for. But, and I think people get lost in that, that they can go outside of their, 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 uh, um, comfort zone to be able to talk to people from different perspectives to, to maybe help hone in what they're trying to do. So, um, and that's kind of like my whole goal for this is just to, I really want to provide a little bit of added value to, to any kind of, if this would even be considered entertainment. I, I, I think it's more educational, even though we're just a lot of times just covering the surface level on things. It's up to Sean. Do you think that that the majority of breeders that you have, come across in this breed do you think the majority of the breeders share your drive for producing quality dogs yeah you're, you're putting me on a, a a big you put me on the spot here um i think it's a valuable question to ask because you and i are talking no it's it's an important yeah. It's an important question to ask. And I think there have been some people that think they're doing that. Um, but what they're producing doesn't show that. And so I think they get kind of lost in what's making them uh, Yeah, and then it just it they're getting They're getting positive feedback from what they're doing and, and they're getting rewards from it. You know, they're, you know, they don't have to worry about selling puppies. They, um, because they have, you know, a, a, a fan base, so to speak. Um, but in the long run, what are they, is it going to last? And like in today's economy, is it, are people going to, be a little more uh, they're going to scrutinize things before they, they open up their wallet. And I kind of feel oh, like, so. I, I find it fine. I kind of feel like the tide is turning on that level. People aren't willing to shell out money for a dog that may not, they may be looking at it more in, in a, in a intellectual eye instead of a, a like, Oh, wow, I love the look. And, in the hype Instead of being emotional one. about it, they're starting to make more yeah. logical choices. There you go. Because the puppy is cute, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and so it's really easy to make an emotional choice about picking up a puppy. Uh, it's this breed that's going to grow up to be like this iconic member of the breed that I've been looking at for the last six years. And since it's that breed, they have these hopes that, you know, it's an emotional draw to purchase that puppy. And I, I think you're right. I think with 
the finances constricting that people's logic is beginning to prevail more and mm-hmm. that they're making more informed choices about what they purchase. And, and, and I think that the market and, and what I have observed in the market is reflecting that. So I think you're right, man. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. People are really being more cerebral. You said intellectual, but I think, you know, like the, the cognitive side of their brain rather than their emotional state is starting to dictate their decisions when it comes to purchasing dogs a little bit more than it, what, it, what it did in the past. So I think that's a good thing. I think this is a great time in breeding old English bulldogs because I think that people are more interested in seeing past the bullshit and making more informed decisions. I know that breeders right now are dropping like flies because I can't visit puppies. And I keep getting asked over and over and over, you know, are you selling dogs? Are you selling dogs? Like, what's going on here? Like, I have a litter of eight puppies that are six months old and I just had another litter of puppies and I don't have any deposits and nothing's moving. And if this doesn't change soon, if the market doesn't turn, then I'm going to have to get out of dogs because I can't afford to do it. Well, yeah. You probably will. A lot of other people mm-hmm. are. Yeah. And to expand on what you were saying is like, I, I think that we're, um, when you see that as a consumer, now as a, somebody who considers themselves a consumer is, um, it's, it's disheartening because then you realize that this person really didn't have a vision and it was about one thing one thing only and you know you can throw money and clout and all that into one one box as far as i'm concerned because they all kind of go hand in hand right um so yeah i look at that and i'm like well what was the point you do you have a passion for dogs or is this something that you felt like this was going to give you some sort of self-worth you know i think it, all of that can encompass the question, right? Are you trying to produce value or are you trying to gain value? That's the right. real difference, you know? And right. I, man, I think, I think that the, the things that you're saying, dude, are really resonating with me. And I think they're probably going to resonate with a lot of people who watch this. And I don't know what your user uh, base is. I don't know how many people are subscribed to Patreon for you or how many people watch your YouTube channel and things like that. But I, I think that probably people that are going to be drawn to you are going to resonate with some of those things that that you're saying and that i'm saying as well you know it's that's a big deal man when it comes to your impetus behind or your motivation behind choosing to breed dogs and in, in, in any breed but especially for the old english bulldog because the old english bulldog is built around the premise that it's a healthy capable functional dog right and so many people are not following that original set of standards, you know, that's the whole premise upon which this breed was built. And so ask yourself, are you looking to get value or are you looking to produce value? Because if you're looking to get value, you may get short term gains. But if you're looking to produce value, that's where your fulfillment comes from. That's where your uh customer fulfillment comes from that's 
where longevity can come from. That's that's where the whole you know, it's like if you're breeding without purpose, without real purpose, you know, if if, if you think that breeding for notoriety or fame or money is purpose, you're wrong. That's that's a reason and it's a pretty poor reason. Um, but if you have purpose behind why you're breeding, if you want to leave the world a better place than you found it, then you better be looking to produce value. And if you are, the funny thing is, is like there's a universal law of proper perspective. And if you get that proper perspective in place and you take care of the big things first, there's room for the small things. And what I mean by that is, in this case, is if you are looking to produce great value, then you will receive value in return. And it may take more time, but when you do get that value, it it will be like floodgates opening. No, absolutely. I'm going to ask you to take it back a little bit. Um, breeding a composite breed, and you talk about having trying to build that type in, in that uh, consistency is, is a difficult thing, especially with like a composite breed of old English right. Bulldogs. And you talk about how your bloodline is tight and, you're in, and you don't have to go outside your yard. When is it appropriate for your program to go outside the yard? This is a question that I think a lot of people... That is a love. perfect question. That is the yeah. question that people fail to ask over and over and over. Because the question that I hear all the time is, how tight is too tight? That's a wrong answer. That's a wrong question. So, you know, the, the types of breedings that we do are tools that we use as breeders to get where we want to go, right? And so, like I stated before, if you outcross it, dilute the genetics that are present in both parents. If you line breed, it tends to uh, retain the genetics that are present in both parents. And if you inbreed, it concentrates the genetics that are present in the parents. And so the question that you asked was formulated perfectly. When is it appropriate to go outside your bloodline? When is it appropriate to outcross? Because outcrossing can be, and this is one of the things, because I asked David Levin a very similar question my first time that I ever talked to him on the phone. Uh, I asked him, um, When is the best time to outcross? I said, I know that you have built uh, your breed based on extensive line breeding. When is it appropriate to outcross? Because I know that at that time in the Levitt dogs and LBA, they were accepting some outcrosses and stuff like that. And uh, the first thing out of his mouth was, I believe outcrossing can be very dangerous. And with my experience in dogs, I found it to be true as well. Um, because there's a whole lot of genetic material that's unknown that you are bringing into known genetic bloodline. So when is it appropriate? I feel that it is only appropriate to outcross under the following conditions. When the dogs that are present on your yard all exhibit the same faults. If you don't have the genetic diversity to get better turn of stifle, so you got a bunch of what we used to call pig leg, now we call it straight stifle. You have straight stifle dogs, 
all across your whole yard, then obviously you must outcross if you are going to correct that flaw, right? So I think that, that outcrossing is only appropriate when you lack the genetic diversity on your yard to fix or correct traits that are undesirable. And other than that, you should be line breeding and end breeding because you're going to get your best, best productions out of line breeding and end breeding. And, and let's say by chance, and this happens, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon that happens occasionally. And because it does happen, they came up with a term for it. And that's called hybrid vigor. Right? So you take two purebred strains and you put them together, and if the outcome is a bigger, stronger version, then, then they call that phenomenon hybrid vigor. Just because you're putting two bloodlines together does not mean that you will get hybrid vigor, um, but it occasionally occurs and occasionally you do. Um, usually it's called outcross depression, and that's a real thing. Um, so... Line breeding will tend to make those genetics kind of stay more consistent. But let's say you do an outcross and you get that hybrid vigor. You get a specimen who's phenomenal. He will never be a prepotent producer. Never. Because he lacks the concentrated genetic material to produce with any consistency. So like I said earlier on in our discussion, like when you get that one awesome specimen, and I don't think I said those particular words, but that's what I mean when you get mm-hmm. just a, 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 a really exemplary specimen, I may have said that, um, then it's just the beginning because now you have to concentrate the genetics on that individual if you're going to create any kind of consistency with him uh, or even better him. It's like having one awesome dog out of 10 on your yard I mean, you, you haven't even scratched the surface of what's possible. You know, the idea is to have a yard full of bangers, just badass, hard-hitting, awesome specimens. Okay, have they contacted me? Okay, I'll check. All right, Sean, so I don't know exactly how much time that I have, but I know that the clock is starting to run out for me. Are there really okay. important that you want me to cover for you and for your audience uh, before I do have to pack it in? Um, we could probably we could probably stop it here if you would uh, uh, if you promise to come on for a part two. That's cool, man. I can do that. Yeah, I'd love to. You can. And, okay. Uh, yeah, man. Just yeah. give me a shout. Like I said, you know, we talked earlier about my schedule a little, little bit. Yeah. You know, but I I do tend to keep it pretty packed you know and i will get back to you i always get back to everybody it it may take a little you know a day sometimes sometimes two um but i do always respond to all my stuff this <laughs> has any value behind it and i feel like you know this i hope that i'm able to provide some value to your to your viewership and and uh i would be really happy to come on again and feel fit my brain you know, obviously, I don't know everything, but there are things that I have learned along the way that I'm happy to share. 
And uh, if I can share some of those those things that I have found great value in, I would be happy to do so. No, awesome. I, I really appreciate that. And and I'm definitely going to bug you for part two. So don't, get, don't get mad at me. No, right. not at I'm, all, brother. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> I'm going to end it right here, but just hold on one sec because I just want to okay. touch on a couple sure. of things. One yeah. sec.